The Tea Stop In podcast series is inspired by the memory of the last surviving founder of the Australian Cinematographer Society, my friend, the late John Leake ACS. When he and his wife Marion retired from the film industry, they bought a little motel outside Sydney and it became a tradition for cinematographers and other filmmakers to stop in and have relaxed conversations about the industry and the craft of cinematography. It earned the nickname of the Tea Stop Inn. This series sets out to recapture the spirit of those conversations, but this time we're inviting you to listen in. T-Stop Inn. Hi everyone and welcome back to the T-Stop Inn. I'm here with returning guest Mike Seymour. Welcome back Mike. G'day, thanks. And it's uh, Dr Mike since last time you were here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been playing doctor. <laughs> so tell us about what uh, what you've been doing because um, of course we all know you from the visual effects world and FX PhD, FX Guide and your work as a visual effects artist as well. Um, but you've been kept busy with some other stuff as well, which has led to this PhD. Yeah, I guess uh, at some point I was doing a lot of consulting and training work and I decided to go back and kind of formalise that process by getting a PhD. But also um, I got to set up a research lab and so that research lab looks at using tech that you might think of as traditionally coming from the film and TV industry uh, in other ways and also it reflects back. So I'm still very active. Uh, In fact... Uh, pertinent to today's discussion, I've been involved uh, in working on feature films, but in a whole different way, using tech that I probably wouldn't have come across if I just stayed uh, where I was. So what sort of tech are we talking about? So basically, uh, the specific stuff that I do um, right now with feature films is uh, neural rendering. So you might think of it as being like a version of uh, deep fakes. And what we've done is taken, the first film we took uh, was a film called The Champion. It was a Polish film shot primarily in Polish and German. And uh, they wanted to distribute it. Now, the trouble with distributing a film that's shot in that language is you've only got really two options. You put subtitles on it or you can, you know, dub it. Now, the trouble with subtitling is your eyes come off the actors. And also you have to keep what the subtitles are to a short enough kind of expression that you can read during the shot. So, like, obviously, if we've got fast-cutting dialogue, you can't have a a long sort of bunch of words on the screen because the audience just hasn't got time to read them. So they kind of mangle it. So if you even listen to an English show and look at the English subtitles, they won't marry up. And then if you dub something, well, then you're kind of taking the audience out of the film because the lips don't match. But to try and match it as well as they can, they, of course, use words in the new language that fit with the visemes or lip movements of the original actor. So again, they don't pay any respect in some, you know, from a certain point of view to the original script and the original performance. Um, and so what we did is we said, okay, what if we just changed every actor's face so it looked like they were speaking in English and it actually delivered those words with the correct uh, visims or lip sync. And so what happens now is you watch the film The Champion and you just think it's shot in English. You just wow. completely don't know the difference. That's, that's really incredible that that's, that's possible. Yeah, no, it's really amazing. It, we aren't actually doing deep fakes. Like um, the best way to think of deep fakes is kind of like if you've got vacuum cleaners and then you have hoovers. And so some people refer to all vacuuming as hoovering. And I get that, right? And so some people refer mm. to all of this tech as deep fakes, but that isn't an accurate reflection. Uh, apart from anything else, we're not face replacing the whole face of an actor with somebody else's face, which is what a typically a, uh, a deep fake is mm. about. And we're not doing it for satirical benefit. Um, but, and I'm, I'm glad that I get a chance to talk to you about this because one of the things that I find really, really interesting is thinking about this in terms of respect to the director, the script writers and the actors. And, uh, one of the problems that I, you know, you sort of don't even think about these things when you first get into them, right? You're like, oh yeah, we're going to change this stuff. Mm. But in talking to the lead actor of the champion, who is actually like Poland's answer to De Niro, right? Like he's just, he teaches yeah. acting. He's got a PhD in acting. This wow. guy's incredibly, like he's a method actor. And so I was really fortunate after the event to have a good sit down chat with him. And what we were discussing is the fact that there are all of these choices that he's making as an actor that aren't being reflected in the process uh, when it's either dubbed or, or uh, subtitled. And then we started getting into this idea that when you change the language, as 
I think they even do during acting classes, right? Like if I give you a line like, uh, hey, do you want a coffee? And you answer with, yes, I really need a coffee right mm-hmm. now. You could emphasize the right now in that or the coffee, right? You could say, I really need a coffee you know, yeah, right they're, now. they're different choices. Yeah. Okay. So now imagine that you make the same choice as an actor to hit the right now at the end. I don't mm. really need a coffee right now. Now we change that to Korean. Yeah. Well, the bit where the right now falls in the Korean translation won't be at the same point in the sentence. Yeah. So yeah, I've got yeah. a few examples of this, but like, so literally it might be that the same emphasis of that intent of the immediacy that that actor is making a decision on happens to mean that he should be emphasizing in the first third of that sentence, not the last bit. Well, if your visemes are your thing, in other words, you're trying to just do dubbing, mm. you have to go with how their mouth was moving. Yeah, so yeah. they're now emphasizing completely the weird words. The, yeah, yeah the wrong part of the sentence. Exactly, yeah. So it's very disrespectful to do that. Um, but what else are you going to do, right? Mm. Um, so what we were trying to do is operate at two levels, like this sort of super technical level, but also at a creative level and saying, you know what? Now we can actually change it so that emphasis hits wherever that actor makes that choice uh, because we're actually changing effectively their face uh, to be their own face, of course, but much more closely to the original intent. And um, I guess I should confess now, <laughs> being a visual effects guy, you know, it's, it, it was a long journey for me to gain the kind of respect that I know you have for actors. Mm. I was a little dismissive in the early days about <laughs> like, you know, how hard can it bloody be? Uh, and, and I came to like just really learn that it's incredibly difficult yeah. uh, to do this stuff. And then just the whole issue of subtext, like what's not being said, like those pauses and all of those things that we take for granted in our own language. Well, how can that be travelled through the uh, process? There's a very long answer to a simple question, mm. but that's what I do. Yeah, no, it's very exciting. And, and are there other ways that this same technology could be used in filmmaking? How open-ended is it? Um, there are an enormous amount of things that you can do uh, and in really, really interesting ways. This particular example of neural rendering is uh, changing somebody's performance. But, of course, we could be taking the same performance and doing it so you're merging two takes. Um, but instead of doing a kind of a morph or some kind of you know thing in the middle, we could just basically change the... Or uh, if you're doing a later dub, right? You've got somebody mm. coming in to do ADR. You could, you know, use that much more effectively if, in the ADR process, they discover, and I do mean discover, a creatively more valid way of delivering that line. Mm. Um, so my view is that within a few years' time, that'll be absolutely standard. Like a director will sit there and in an ADR session, which, as you know, is like a heap of dialogue, mm. and somebody will find a new you know, emphasis in the same way that we find a reframing of a shot and we won't think anything about adjusting that um, to give their performance the right... Uh, and, and not Because have the, the lip sync can just happen. Yep. And it's, is it going to be that, that easy that it will be a routine thing? Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about it, yeah. I mean, we're at the beginning of a massive kind of change in filmmaking. Like this is, this is digital cinematography, you know, again, like that level of uh, change. So we're talking there about the impact of AI more broadly, not just in this particular. So can you kind of explain a bit about what AI really is? Because there's kind of the, the sci-fi version that we've all been hearing about for decades. But what is AI as we know it now? Sure. So the first thing you have to understand is that we very rarely use the term AI because, as you point out, it's so broad. So that's like artificial intelligence. It's like, what does that mean? And it's like fairly ill-defined, except for we all lump it in as this kind of new magical thing that is really hard to define. So the first thing I would say is we tend to discuss about machine learning. Mm. And machine learning is a better phrase because it articulates that the machine has somehow learned to give you a plausible response. Now, it might be a visual plausible response. It might be a plausible mat around somebody, or it might be, in my case, a plausible delivery of a line. And it's learnt that, and that's what makes machine learning at the moment so powerful. Earlier versions of artificial intelligence, somebody tried to program the artificial intelligence. Like, if you say this, then I'll say that. Mm. If you don't say this, I'll do something else. And that was trying to conceive of a kind of a branching tree of decisions, and it just never really stood up. Because that's, that's not way, not the way that a mind works. Not the way a mind works. And also it just doesn't tend to produce uh, plausible results because you're sort of second guessing mm. 
Whereas what uh, machine learning is doing is saying, look, I'm going to learn from a vast amount, normally a vast amount of stuff in very different ways. Mm. And then I'm going to either transfer it or plausibly reproduce it in the style of or reference that in some way that is insightful. And so you end up with things. So let's jump to text, right? Mm. So we've heard a lot about um, uh, these new forms of generative AI that are text-based, right? You, yeah, it's really exploded into the popular consciousness in the last couple of months. Just since it? November, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so in that case, it isn't Google. Like if you ask Google a question like, when did the queen die? It's referencing some kind of database mm. about the correct answer. What generative AI does is it gives you the most statistically likely answer to that, which isn't necessarily the same as knowledge so in other mm. words it's not sort of saying well we've got a verified source on this it's saying when people ask that question his, this is the most sort of common sensible phrasing of an answer that i can come up with now you might think that's a pretty subtle difference and in many cases it is but it has a huge difference in terms of originality mm. or at least correctness so if you have something in the popular culture right now that was an urban myth right mm. Like imagine that uh, it was more likely that you'd die of an aeroplane crash than getting married over the age of 30 if you're a woman, right? Okay, now yeah. that may have no basis in fact, but if that's been repeated enough and is common enough in the kind of domain, then a generative AI will pick up that and give you that in an answer. Mm. Whereas Google is more likely, or something like Google, that's uh, you know, Wikipedia or whatever, is is more likely to come up with a correct answer. But of course, it's not going to present it conversationally mm. in the form of something that seems like someone's speaking to you, which is going to give you like a, a block of text. So if you're willing to live with the fact that it's only a language tool, not a knowledge tool, mm. it's astounding. It just seems so remarkable that it's magic. Well, one of the things that we've always been told about computers is that they uh, will never be likely to actually do anything creative. The creative jobs will be the ones that will be around um, after AI. I, I think what a lot of people have been surprised at in seeing the way that this generative text generating in particular um, has worked since it's kind of burst into the public sphere in the last couple of months is that there's stuff there that looks, even though it's drawn from uh, existing source material in terms of how it's been taught and it's being prompted to create something there are there are sentences and paragraphs that feel like they're genuinely creative so let's use a visual example right imagine i'm asking you as a dop to shoot me a shot of a guy coming towards the homestead mm. and i say i want it to look like david lynch like and just really uh very kind of uh quiet and uh, foreboding mm. right now, you are a naturally super creative guy. I know this because I've shot with you many times, right? <laughs> but here's the thing, right? I articulated that yep. by referencing things that you yeah, knew. Yeah. And that would allow you to say, oh, okay. So if, now I'm guessing what you do. But you tell me. What, if I ask you to do that and it's an out where in Kuma and I'm... I'd go and look at references of his work and take examples and, and, and look at what made that work. Now, is that uncreative? No. Is that a valid way to make something that's original it's it's I, I believe it is okay so then so then i would argue if you get a computer to know everything that david lynch has ever shot and anything that people mm. describe as very like david lynch-esque mm. and it it understands a lot of a bunch of other stuff and it produces a result which is different it's not a copy of a david lynch shot but in that style then it's serving a creative purpose it's is it mm. inherently creative um, it has no like if that was a mother coming over the hill, you know she's worried that her, she's going to find her son dead at the homestead. It'd have no understanding of motherhood, but it might produce you a really evocative-looking image that yeah, yeah. you went, yeah, that's nailed what Mike asked so for. So it doesn't as a necessarily understand context. Yeah, but but the trouble is we kind of romanticize creativity as being an isolated like the the, the myth is you've got a genius right and they mm. just sit in a room and they. Ideas come to them. Yeah, and they paint this thing that yeah. no one's ever seen before. And But, I mean, if you look at Picasso, he didn't go to cubism straight out of the gate. Mm. Like he had the Rose Period, he had all, all this figurative mm. work that was quite built on that entire heritage of uh, French and uh, European painting. And so 
unfortunately, you know, it isn't the case that you tend to just pull stuff out of your butt. <laughs> it's just that you <laughs> actually reference all this great stuff and you look at it, which is why we like style books, right? Yeah. And like when I ever worked with production designers or in, in visual effects, we just loved having a style book to get mm. a feel for what they were talking about. And then we'd find ways of applying it to this new thing. And that is the point we're at with this stuff now is that it's very good at saying, oh, okay, so you'd like David Lynch-esque cinematography of a Pixar film. Mm. And he goes, oh, I understand Pixar films. I understand David Lynch films. He doesn't understand them, of course. It just knows a lot of them. Mm. And then it comes up with a, a plausible hybrid. Yeah. Now, am I saying that it should win an Academy Award? No, but it's, it's plausible, right? Mm-hmm. But sometimes plausible is like really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, um, it's easy to underrate plausible. Yeah, I mean, obviously, every once in a while you see a shot in a film and you just think, oh, my God, I've never seen that before. That's incredible. Mm. But most of the That's time... That's fairly rare, though. It is, yeah. It, it, and also, you kind of stylistically want things to flow. So mm. there is meant to be a style normally. Now, maybe mm. it's only scene-based, but, you know, it's normally, like, not just random Mm. unless you're watching i don't know dr strange and a marvel (laughs) (laughs) leaving that aside for a second um yeah and so you know it's completely plausible that you just build up these mental models as an individual based off a kind of collection of impressions that you've had over obviously in your case and mine decades Mm. and the computer does that just very very quickly so it doesn't need decades it needs since november really yeah (laughs) so how far are we into this transition of, of AI starting to make an impact on on what we do? I think we're at the beginning of what's going to happen and there's a big lag between what is coming out of the labs, what is going into films right now and what we have on our screens. Now that used to be something that you'd measure in years. but mm. So for example, I was at the Academy Award Bake Offs in Hollywood, right? And so you get 10 uh, teams presenting their work so as to go into the uh, voting pool and be Mm. nominated to be one of the five, which gets the Oscar. Okay. So at that stage, it's um, very senior people, visual supervisors, presenting to people who presumably are members of the Academy. So they're either nominated or got an Oscar, right? So there's no sense that anyone's dumbing down the conversation. And I was kind of really amazed. There was like only a couple of occasions, maybe three, where people mentioned AI and it was nearly always like this. We did this stuff with AI and it was really kind of interesting and we're going to do more in the future because a film that's coming out now that's in the Oscar race now, you know, they were conceiving of stuff, what, two, three years ago. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, so those lead times. Exactly. Yeah. So I feel like maybe next year, we'll possibly the year see. after, it'll be the year of AI where wow. you just go, every film's got AI in it because yeah. that's what's happening right now. But those films haven't been released. So in yet. terms of like the timeline of sound, we're, we're just before the jazz singer. Yeah. And so it's happening the um, and the studios, the uh, visual effects houses uh, are aware of it, and obviously they've got good people doing so. But they have been aware of it from a while. Like there were some really good presentations at the graphics conference called SIDGRAPH uh, just before the pandemic, and then some of those people that were making those presentations on, hey, this is what um, machine learning is, went to you know got jobs literally right after at the major facilities mm. and then they were training those people up and then that's gone into films. So uh, Avatar used neural uh, approaches to do the facial animation in this film. So it's not like it hasn't mm. happened. Now, that's probably the pointy end of the film industry because I think you'd agree visual effects tends to be a fairly tech-heavy mm-hmm. uh, end. So they're going to be early adopters. Yeah. But so there's no department that won't. There's no department that won't be affected by Well, think about it. Like if you're – I mean, you pick a department and I'll give you an example. There you go. Let's play pop quiz. Well, let's um, – so, well, production. Okay, so production wants uh, to make that style book, right? Yeah. So the first thing they're going to do is lynch Pixar and start getting uh, automatically generated imagery. Now, will it be anything in the final images? No, but the thing about these things is they're not one-shot um, tools. So you could say mm, that and mm. you could get something. Okay, that, but – more at uh, Magic Hour. You know I mean, mm. like you can build it yeah, out, yeah, yeah. you can direct it. And that's a creative process to direct it, but you would iterate on that so quickly. Yeah. Um, Versus finding reference images, that's going to be a much faster and more accurate process. I don't know if it's more accurate, but it's certainly anything that lets you iterate on something is, mm. is normally really good. Like anything yeah. that lets you 
um, like when you're editing or when you're mm. doing visual effects, if you can render faster, if you can iterate on it faster, you can tend to zero in quicker. Um, but yeah, I mean, pick any department. Well, like e- editing. What editing. sort of things we're going to see there? Well, okay, for a start, like there's uh, an enormous amount of tools uh, that'll come just to aid what you already currently do. And then we're already seeing these in like DaVinci, right? You get mm-hmm. automatic mats, you yep. get the ability to do head uh, tracking, uh, eye tracking, various face things for when you're doing the grading part of it. But also um, in the moment, uh, if you're doing a Zoom call, NVIDIA has just released a tool so that it will change your eyes. So it looks like you're looking at the camera, not looking down on the screen where the other person's head is. <laughs> I so saw a demo of that. It's yeah. uh, it's incredible. So, so if that's already happening, um, and I should say like, this, my general philosophy on this is if you want to see the future, look in the labs right now because mm. stuff does come out of somewhere, right? It doesn't yeah. come out of nowhere. <laughs> okay, so if you look at that, that's happening right now. It works. So couldn't you imagine an editing process just saying, I'd like to adjust the eye line on this and then just wow. moving a pointer in 3D space and it just adjusting the eye lines of the actors because that would be a better eye line, right? Wow. Um, and then further down the track, we'll start saying, you know what? The actress here, Ben, we're just not seeing the left side of her face. Could you just turn her face a bit more? And it will infer, because it knows what she looks like, what it would look like if her head was 10 degrees more towards camera, right? Wow. Um, and then I, and where, where does editing stop and grading start? Because mm. I don't, but you know, clearly well, you that, can change that, that the lighting. Line is, is getting blurrier and blurrier all the time. Yeah. So, um, I mean, how far off is being able to change nuances of performance? Like if the actor raises their eyebrow and the director goes, I wish they hadn't done that. Well, we could do that now. That's, that's not a problem. Do that now. Yeah. Wow. So that kind of raises some ethical questions. Yes. <laughs> do, do we want to get into that can of worms? No, no, you can. I mean, I, I guess... How complex is that? It is certainly a time-based question. Like I get, I, so funny. I um I do research, obviously, and we were doing research into face swapping and changing performances. Mm. And I published this research. And uh, uh, and a let me just say, a UK professor at either Cambridge or Oxford literally publicly said that my work was uh, something that shouldn't be funded by any university. It was an atrocity and it should be shut down immediately because of the dangers to democracy. And it was literally like he was saying this, he's like a full professor. Mm. It was like the Manhattan Project and that idiots like me didn't know what they were playing with. I was really surprised by that reaction though, you know, kind of rejoiced in it as well, right? Because you really know you're (laughs) making some impact. But um, okay, so so why did they say that? They were like, well, if you do that, then then you won't know anything is true. Mm. And I was I came back with well a couple of things. Firstly, movies aren't true. I mean, documentaries, <laughs> you know, but even then, yeah, you know. but but yeah, but like they aren't really doctors. You're not yeah. really shooting that guy in the head. Like you know, that isn't a real hospital. It's like a car yeah, park yeah. that you converted. Yeah. So so there's that. Um, mm. But then the other thing is, we had Photoshop. And democracy didn't end, but mm. you could Photoshop a picture to me of me looking like I'm doing something atrocious, right? You could Photoshop me, and it would be uh, wrong, unethical, and and you know blatantly uh, a violation of my rights. But that's been around for a while, right? Yeah. So why is it that we don't treat Photoshop with the same gasp and horror that we do some of these other techniques? And I, I think maybe some people did when it first came along. I, that's exactly what I was getting to. Like you're, you're ahead of me on that. Because <laughs> if the, you have an educated population, yeah, then you've got that's your best line of defence. Your best yeah. inoculation against misuse is a population. So if you saw a picture of me, you know, um, with a melon, you know, in some kind of really, you'd be like, hey, I know, Mike, that's a Photoshop <laughs> picture, right? Like that's just somebody's just, you know, being either nasty or funny or, yeah, or yeah. both. But, you know, you just would do that, right? Just yeah, it's Photoshop, yeah. right? If you saw Barack Obama, um, I don't know, like uh, as part of a reformed Spice Girls, I'm really stretching my imagination here, right? You say, well, that's improbable. I bet you that's just been Photoshop. You, you question it, yeah. yeah. So if you were an informed population and you saw a moving clip of Obama as one of the Spice Girls, mm. you'd be like, okay, well, that's just uh, been done with your rendering. So, so I guess that, we've kind of got a roadmap there in terms of people over time will learn, okay, these things are possible and in this context it's probable and they'll learn to question things that are unlikely though interestingly it goes the other way as well there was this uh brazilian um uh, 
pretty sure it was Brazil, uh, politician. And they had him on video with seven hookers jumping up and down on top of him, right? And what happened is this came out and he said, no, 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 it's a deep fake. It's a deep <laughs> fake, right? And yeah. then the clip went to a bunch of experts, including uh, a colleague of mine. So I saw this clip. And by the way, Ben, there's nothing like trying to explain to your wife why you're watching <laughs> a shot of seven hookers in a Brazilian brothel. Uh, no, no, honey, it's for work. But... Um, but the point was, it wasn't a deep fake, right? Yeah. But it was about seven days before the collective wisdom of the experts was collated, put in a thing and published, right? Wow. So for seven days, this guy got a clean ticket and he got re-elected. So you'd argue that the story that it was actually real never had much weight compared to the initial story that he was a victim mm. of this political smear campaign and that wow. someone had deep faked him in. So, so it, can, it can have just as much impact going the other way. Other way, yeah. And people just saying, no, 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 that wasn't me. No, no, no. I, no, honestly, mum, I was just trying to push the sheep through the fence. No. <laughs> so, yeah. So how does the ethics apply to the film industry in terms of things like um, changing performance of, or changing lighting? Well, that's exactly why we sort of started the conversation. So for me, the word I use is respect. So mm. we were and do try and look at this from a point of view of are we respecting um, people in their process? Now, if the director would like the actor to deliver the line differently uh, and he's the director, then we're respecting his wishes and that's mm. the correct thing and I have no problem with it, right? If, however, uh, you are changing an actor um, you know, in some way that they don't want or in a way that is not uh, reasonable, then mm. you're in trouble. The reason I use the word respect is think about this. Let's say, again, we've got a shot of, I don't know, um, pick, pick me an actor, right? Like a, Morgan Freeman. Okay, Morgan Freeman. Now, we get Morgan Freeman and we put uh, subtitles. Mm. They're bad subtitles. What are you going to do? That's kind of odd. Yeah. Right? That's an odd word. Okay, now we dub him badly. And you're probably going to laugh, right? Because bad dubbing is just funny. Yeah. But if we do a bad <laughs> neural render of him speaking in another language and you're in that other language – you won't think that it's odd or funny. You'll think he can't act. Mm. Now, that's a really different thing because Morgan Freeman, obviously an established actor, he deserves and has earned the right to be treated with respect. But even if we're talking about an actor that isn't senior, like mm. that's their livelihood. Yeah, yeah. And if we, if we look at an actor today that's just giving an English performance and they're just maybe out of acting school and say, you know, they're not very good. Just, you know, it's not, I don't really believe them. Mm. You, you know, you sort of judge, you know, it might be nice to them on the set, but you're like, this dude isn't really, you know, got the chops. Yeah. But if as an established actor and it, they are giving a great performance with lots of subtext, but mm. we change their performance in a way where all of that subtext is lost and, we, and then another audience goes, you know, that guy can't act. I don't know why, mm. uh, you know, the, the English think this guy's such a good actor because he's like <laughs> terrible. He just, I don't believe that he was a father for a second. Uh. So... There's a huge responsibility and a respect issue. Mm. I don't know if that's ethics, but it's certainly probably on the edge of it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, conceivably that could go the other way as well, where you give, where you have somebody who gives a mediocre performance and the director uh, in post is able to manipulate that to the point where it becomes compelling. Yes. Now, is that a problem or a good thing? Well, is it? It's, I would say know, that's a good a, thing. It's a, From the point of view of that particular film it's a great thing i mean i worked on a film where there was an actress that was hired and she i saw this film and i thought she was brilliant i wasn't casting of course i was just on the film yeah and she just couldn't deliver and i remember sitting with the director late at night and he was like i don't know how this other director got such a good performance out of her because i mean she's just wooden and she wasn't she didn't have an attitude she didn't like it wasn't like she had the huff or anything mm. but i swear it was just like just didn't believe her and now the first director managed somehow through editing, through really good cinematography, I don't know what, to get a great performance out of her on screen. So I say if you can get a good performance mm. and you – I mean obviously you don't want to you know, do anything that's like nasty, but if mm. you can do anything to get a good performance out of someone, you know. Um, do it. <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of open, isn't it, to yeah. – Well, I guess we kind of – again, like the Photoshop example – that example is already there to a certain extent with editing. So, uh, I mean, I, I've certainly seen situations where an actor's performance has been saved in the edit Yep. many, many times. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, you can do that often with just, uh, yeah, the, the timing of the, uh, of the cut and no one ever questions that. 
But again, we're so used to that, right? Mm. So this new tech we're just not used to yet, I think. So uh, once we're used to it, then you'll be you know, less prone to saying, oh my God, that person is the killer actor and more like those filmmakers are good filmmakers. Mm-hmm. What do you think the impacts are going to be on the script writing process? Uh, so it's, it's, um, it's without a doubt probable that people are already uh, producing a lot of um, early drafts of scripts to, to knock stuff out that involves, um, you know, ChatGDP because it's just so good at doing what mm. it's doing. So I guess my thing is there is, a, there is a role for writing a script in a different way that says I'm just trying to kind of get the bones of this thing up and so in the same way, if I was doing something visual, I'd do a, you know, stick man sort of sketch mm. to sort of say what I wanted. You'll be able to use computer writing tools to kind of like, I need a bar scene here and they need, I need kind of this. Mm. And then the, a really good writer sort of read that, take that, build from it, extend with it and see things in it suggested that they maybe hadn't thought of and go with it. Mm. Um, so in that respect... Some people will be mortified by me saying that and others will think, oh, my God, I've had writer's block and I've stood there with a white page and I can't... It gets you past that point. Yeah, I can't get going. Yeah. And if you could just articulate something... And I've done tests. I did tests with people that were in vet, in law and in visual effects and I said, just give me a sentence, and I'll, or two sentences, and I'll give you, you know, a couple of paragraphs back and mm. see what you think. And I think in every case in the ones that I did, um, people went... That's ridiculous. They're yeah. they're referencing things that I never made any, never mentioned in my part of the uh, process, mm. but are plausible things that you would uh, you would go to, and they were kind of stunned because if it's not in your area, you think, well, yeah, but if it was in my area, you know, it wouldn't be. Yeah. So, so I don't think script writing. Um, I mean, script writing is the same as as any of the other creative crafts, right? A lot of script writers would say the best way to become a script writer is read lots of scripts. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's absolutely true. The, all the people that I know that are good at script writers read a, an enormous amount and take stuff in. So it's kind of the same deal uh, as the other areas, except for it's happened so quickly that I think it's caught people off guard. Yeah, yeah. And and I guess being able to generate ideas and um, expand on things very, very quickly and, uh, again, being able to iterate very, very quickly uh, could be could change the process in terms of how you can get to something that's functioning as a draft yes though we did do a creative workshop where we had groups uh trying to uh, come up with some fresh concepts and we discovered that if you don't know how to use the tools you get lost in that process of just trying to understand how to communicate with it or what to say Mm. to get a good response but if you are versed in how to use the tools then they're really good ideation tools. But it's not like somebody that knows nothing would sit down for the first time and enter a few words and get a masterpiece. It just yeah, doesn't yeah. work like that. Mostly people got really frustrated that they knew it could do amazing things and someone over there is doing amazing <laughs> things. So why can't we do the amazing things? What did you say? What, what, what words did you use that caused it to come up with amazing stuff? So um, it's kind of like uh, AI wrangling is going to be a skill. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so... I mean, the, the compute power and the, the internet's ability to provide us with plausible examples upon which to learn from is just causing this exponential explosion. Mm. And how do you see that um, kind of rolling out in terms of uh, planning of projects? Well, I wouldn't want to be a focus puller. <laughs> yeah, gosh. Well, I hadn't thought of that. So that's... I mean, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I guess we've already seen massive leaps in autofocus technology in recent Yeah, but times, this is but like, uh, yeah. I mean, we, I don't know, you know, somebody will soon implement, you know, a thing where you're just describing what you want in focus in the shot and it's going to just track that, move that and, and do that and stylistically do it in a way that is whatever the reference that you sort of notionally are giving it or working to. Um, wow. So that, that, what was the original question? As well, in terms of how, and that actually does feed into the question, which is uh, how is this going to affect planning projects? Um, it, with what you're describing there, it's going to change the structure of crews. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that I found really marvelous in the last decade is how the people that are doing the visual effects stuff are no longer the boffins over at craft services who you turn around to and go, hey, will that work? And they're like mouth half full of like, you know, lollies go, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that'd be great. And then like later they just go, I'm like, you know, I'm going to fix this all in post because it's crap. <laughs> and similarly, we don't get DOPs who are like, I don't know what this crap is. Like I remember being mm. on set and, and somebody saying, me saying actually, they had to put dots on all these things and somebody laughing, going, Haha, like in the future, we're going to have dots on over everything, right? Like what a joke, right? And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, now, of course, we don't need dots so much anymore because we can track just about anything, any which way. Um, but uh, when you get um, the ability to understand how things work from examples, then you mm. get just uh, a better realism. So I think, and I don't think it's, I mean, you call it visual effects, but it's the people that understand that AI technology, be them in virtual production, be them, you know, in uh, the art department and production design, they're going to have a seat at the table. And I think what's really nice is that the DOPs, and I always see a DOP as like the head of the crew, mm. they are not sitting there going, oh, you know, keep this crap away from me, what a joke, let's get, you know. They're saying, hey, I want to pull off this really interesting thing and I'm sure you guys can do it. And and they are active participants in that creative process. So when you see the Batman, right, and you mm. see the use of LED screens and you see um, – and like just subtle things. Like the other day I came up with this – it's not a particularly AI thing that will be very soon. Mm. Um, so in the Batman they were trying you – know, it was shot – you know that chase sequence where the car comes through? Yeah. yeah, it's gorgeous, right? But it was actually dry, right? It wasn't wet. So all the water was added. And at the first part of it, it was all in camera. And by the end of that shot, it was nearly all digital. Wow. And so, but here's the thing that I thought was really cool about it is that they were having to add in motion blur to the uh, headlights and lights of the cars. And if you're a DOP, you'd know this. And if you think about it, you'd, you'd agree it's true. If you sample a frame where something is and sample the next frame, then clearly it's moved across that distance. So let's say it's moved, you know, no, 25 pixels, right? But half the time the shutter was closed, half the time it was open. Mm. So when it's open for half that distance, the light's going to streak. That's yep. what a motion blur is, right? Yep. The trouble is with a computer, if you sample it at frame one and frame two, it just draws a straight line between it. And obviously the, the blur goes from point B back to point A, but only halfway, right? Yeah. Makes sense, right? Yep. But of course, in a real camera, it isn't moving in a straight line. It's shaking, it's rotating, it's doing all these other things. And so in the Batman, they were doing subframe tracking so the motion blurred lines oh, are wow. curved or bumpy or whatever so if you park on a frame of the digital the batman sequence yeah the mm. headlight streaks aren't straight lines they've got all of the energy and intensity that would have happened had a moving thing being bouncing around for that 148th of a second which just makes it look real mm. almost no one in the audience is ever going to think about that consciously like well, be able to identify. Greg Fraser. <laughs> You're Greg. <laughs> but in the general public, nobody's yes. going to notice that or think about it. But the the effect on the audience and and how they experience that moment and the realism of it is um, is quite powerful. Yeah. So they also had to track where all the vehicles were, right? Because mm. they had to put water coming off the wheels and bounce water off the – but mainly put water in front of the headlights of any of the vehicles in those shots, right? Well, now – Okay, so now, so there's a thing, right? That was really, really hard. And the guys that worked on that, in this case, was at Weta um, FX, like one of them uh, is in the Oscar nominee pool for the Batman, okay? Mm. The thing is, that was really, really, really hard and took a lot of time. But what in that picture couldn't be done with machine learning? Like for a start, working out where all the cars were so you could make fake kind of objects, phantom objects mm. in 3D so that it would have something to bounce water off Obviously, you don't see that digital car. It's just invisible, but it causes the water to bounce yeah. when you add the digital water. And causing all the motion blurs to have those kind of proper optical effects, which were really hard to generate uh, manually, but done beautifully in this film, that's stuff that'll just be really quick to do, right? And mm. so I swear to God, in like five years' time, you're going to have that sitting here on your computer as just a button, right? You just go do yeah. that. Like work out the geometry in the scene, give me fake objects at all so I can light those surfaces, bounce water off them or do what I want. And so that's shortening production cycles. Mm. And it's 
also lifting the bar. So in one sense, we've had this forever, right? It, the images get better, but it takes, normally it used to take almost as long. It's just that the audience kind of expected better. Mm. Well, I think that's changing now. I think that we're going to get shorter production cycles. It's going to get better visually, um, more accuracy, more, you know, fidelity. And while I agree with you that no one would explicitly notice that, you, because I could tell them, look on your face, didn't think that half those sequences at the end of the Batman chase were, were digital. No, no. They didn't because they just had the authenticity of that visceral uh, cinematography that Greg defined mm. and the artists interpreted. And that's exactly what the machine learning is going to do. So the it's really going to bring a lot of what it, what has been possible but very, very labour-intensive work down to you know a click of a button. Yeah, yeah, or yeah, a couple of clicks, but yes, yeah. definitely. And I think that um, the only reason I hesitated on the click of a button is I used <laughs> to always have this thing where we, when I was a flame artist, we'd be doing these amazing shots, right? And like babies talking and people yeah, walk yeah. in and they go, wow, that's incredible. This is a really good box. And I'd be like, <laughs> what? <laughs> so I'm not, I'm, I'm not claiming it's just the push of a button. Yeah, yeah. I know what you meant, right? But I, I do think that you'll ne- still need competent people to control those things which is why i always say uh people aren't going to be replaced by ai but people who know how to use ai Mm. will get the jobs and people that don't know how to use it won't yeah yeah. um because it's just such a game changer Uh, so yeah so it's going to be the um the skills of how to interact with the ai and then how to get it to do and then build on what it's done yeah yeah and you know, it's knowing that you need to press the button, as it were, and knowing mm. that this shot would be better if you didn't clutter it yep. versus uh, cluttering it. And, uh, I mean, I think you taught me that. It's like turning lights <laughs> off as a good you know, way to light, not turning them on. Um, and I, I think that's true with this as well, that there'll be an oversaturation of some of these things when they first come out because yeah, people are definitely. like, oh, my God. Like a- any new technology or trick or something, yeah. it's, it's going to be everywhere for a little while yeah but having said that like yeah you just won't know yourself but there's not much that you can't simulate if you can't get good reference wow and that that's kind of that's a whole new thing i mean there's um in terms of being able to realistically and and efficiently enough create things create elements that and super res stuff, right? Like, I mean, yeah. uh, the up-resing process, which used to be just really dodgy, and now you get these phenomenal up-resings. Um, and, yeah, as I say, like... So reframing, you know... Reframing... Not nearly the... Already is not nearly the issue yeah. that it used to be. And so if that's the case, and we all feel pretty comfortable with that in the super res mm. functions, then, as I say, like, it's going to be the head turn. It's like, I can't see the other side of their head. Wait a second, I'll just turn their head a bit uh, in post. That's mind-boggling. Yeah, let's put more backlight... The thing about faces, which is, well, let's face it, mainly what we want to look at, um, is that they're roundy, overly bald things and they work really well for doing things like, well, they're relatively consistent. I mean, most heads are like, digitally speaking, similar. um, And they're round. And And I guess there's a lot of reference material available. there's a lot of reference of them. And, you know, there's nearly always two eyes and a nose and a mouth in the same kind of place proportion. Like, there's just so much consistency. Now, we're highly tuned to the subtleties of the differences between those. But generally speaking, like, you get a crowd of people, like, most of their heads look pretty much the same, which Mm. is what a computer needs to be able to then learn how a head would look if you could see the other side of it. Mm. And it's, it's sort of plausibly saying, it's not a perfect copy of the side I can see, but I know it's sort of going to be like this and if I've got other images of the person. And, and I think this is something that is never really discussed, but we certainly felt really proud of this. It isn't like you might imagine that all of these things require mountains of hours of stuff. Like we did The Champion and we had shots that were 24 frames long. and Sorry, 20 frames long, not, so not even a second. Mm. And we had no training material from the shoot. On the shoot... We never asked them to film anything different. There was no dots on faces. There was no, hey, can we just get you to stand under this special array of lights? What we had as input to doing their faces was nothing but the final finished graded film. Wow. Nothing required at all, zero, not even like outtakes or B-roll or second takes, just just the film. So based off how it worked and 
it's not quite this simple. I'm kind of simplifying it. But once we get an, a fairly good idea, then we only need it like 18, 20 frames to be able to change that performance. Wow. Which, you know, if you were speaking to me like a year or two ago, I'd have been, well, you need, you know, 40 minutes. Wow. Well, uh, it's that big a change oh, yeah, in yeah, that like, shorter time frame. Yeah, like when they did David Beckham uh, discussing malaria and they had him changing his languages, I think it was about 40 minutes worth of training material. Wow. And so you can do that now with just the content within the film. Yes, just with the content within the film. So um, so what about things like um, ageing and de-ageing? Uh, so, yeah, so that's uh, you know coming to a store near you very soon. There's going to be uh, a fairly commercially available thing coming out of beta in the middle of this year. It's in alpha now that, yeah, you just – it finds what it thinks is the best face in the sequence – uh, like in the shot, and then it de-ages that with you, with you know, some controls, and then it applies it to the rest of the uh, shot. Wow. Because, again, we know now that your ears get bigger, your nose gets longer, like we understand um, how faces work. How, how that works visually. And the computer did it by just looking at tons of faces and going, hey, these ones look different from these ones like this. And so in Photoshop right now, as a still, you can download um, a plugin for Photoshop mm. by Adobe and you can put your own face in and it'll say, you know, older, younger, you know, uh, more hair, less hair, and <laughs> less or more wrinkles. Um, and it works great on a still. Yeah, and yeah. so that's So we're kind of six months maybe away from yep. that being realistically available for... Yeah, do you remember images? when cameras came out with that button? I think it was Sony that did it, where it basically hit the skin tones and softened them. It didn't soften mm. anything that was high con. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and suddenly you had all these actors on soap operas that were remarkably <laughs> like without skin detail. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's going to be that. It's, uh, it, it, I mean, it's really, it's going to be a very, very significant couple of years. Um, yeah. So what I think what we want to look for is the the sort of, dare I say, the truth or like the spontaneity, the um, originality, the kind of the things that just ring as authentic. Like when people say to me, hey, you know, you could make a video that made the Prime Minister or the US President looking like they're doing something. I'm mm. like, you could and we'd make it look marvellous. But if I was trying to actually, you know, fake a video of somebody, I'd shoot it through a shower curtain on an iPhone, yeah, wobbly yeah. with bad audio and like, hang on a second, <laughs> is that a donkey? What the? I can't even see what's going on, right? Because it's that yeah, yeah. gives it visual authenticity. And so filmmakers um, will come up with ways of using these things that, that resonate with us in a kind of a true sense and then that'll be amazing. Mm. Um, but, yeah, there'll be others that'll just, you know, gosh, look at this fun button. Uh, I was having a play with um, one of the um, the AI image generators and I gave it a prompt of um, uh, an old wizard uh, in the style of Rembrandt. And, you know, I, like most cinematographers, I love Rembrandt's style and lighting in particular. And the results were amazingly good. Of the dozen or so images, I'd say probably two-thirds of them were at a glance, very, very convincing. Um, but the thing that really got me was the lighting style was bang on. Like it was real Rembrandt lighting. Yes, because because you recognise what Rembrandt lighting is mm. and so we shouldn't be surprised that the computer recognised it as well. We shouldn't be, but I was. Yeah. No, no, it's, <laughs> it's good that it does it, yeah. No, yeah. look, I certainly changed my profile picture to one that's uh, taken by Annie Lebowitz. And I'm serious. <laughs> my profile picture is an AI-generated image of me wow. uh, by a uh, photographer I could never afford. So in terms of lighting, with, with what it understands of, of lighting and, and then combined with manipulating the image, I mean, we've had tools for, for a while, quite a while now, where we can make changes to the lighting in color grading but how far like you were talking about uh, you know increase the backlight there how far will those tools be able to go in the in the near future uh, i'm i'm kind of loath to do this bit because i mean i always sound like a prat and i actually don't <laughs> like people that are futurists like i really really hate them i think they're just <laughs> annoying people but for for the if you'll excuse me and i like i'm going to give you the like you think where I'm going to go with this next comment, but I'm going to tell you what it's actually going to be like, I think. And it's not futurist stuff. I'm yeah. pretty much willing to state my reputation that this is within 24 months. 
you'll be able to film, as in capture, a child's party and then your, say, a grandparent, uh, would be able to take on their iPad and watch that from any angle. So think about that for a second, right? I would film the kid's party. Now, initially, this will be done at a, a pro level and you'll do a store and then you'll process this and it'll be a little bit expensive, but mm. this is where it's going. So you you've imagine that, you know, you have all this new tech and you decide to use it for a birthday party. So you capture the birthday party volumetrically um, and then you've got a volumetric understanding of that space. And then the person that's using the iPad, as they move the iPad, it just moves their view on that birthday party. And we won't think anything of the fact that you could, oh, well, let's move around because Bob's head's in the way and I can't see the candle being blown out. You move your iPad to the left and you see around Bob's head. And the yeah. reason for this is that um, it's going to be a combination of sensor capture and NERFs. So NERFs are a way of basically using um, machine learning to plausibly connect up a bunch of images in such a way that you reconstruct a three-dimensional set. Wow. Um, so it already works and uh, and you can, you know, basically have a turntable around an actor that looks uh, like you can just go anywhere around the actor. I did it uh, on my iPhone uh, in Korea of a horse sculpture and I just can't show you this right the second, but <laughs> you can just move anywhere you like around the horse sculpture and um, now it took me a little bit of time to do that and it took a little bit of time to capture, mm. but that's exactly where it's going. Uh, and that's the kind of extra dimension. It's not like, hey, we're going to be able to add some backlight. It's like I'm going to actually have a volumetric recording of this event in a room and now if you want to cut a... Now, it won't be feature film initially out of the gate, right? It'll be... As I say, like for kind of like a store or a, an event or a special thing, mm. but yeah, you'll just be able to say, okay, well, let's put some more light in here. And because it's an actual volume, when you put the light in, it's casting shadows and it's doing those things that you, you actually want it to do. Wow. So, so presumably, that will at some point in the future, and if we're talking about twenty-four months time frame for that to actually uh, be possible for. Um, you know, tools that are generally available. We're, you know, we're, we're looking at that we'll get to a cinematic kind of quality level in, in a, a time frame that's, you know, not sci-fi. Yeah, because it's running right now on a still on my iPhone. So I'm saying in 24 months it'll be moving. Yeah. And it won't initially, because, and a friend of mine is very fond of quoting this, it's like any new tech that's just mind-blowing initially looks like a toy. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah, imagine, yeah. remember back when uh, digital cameras first came out and they were like really hokey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, kind of, that's crap. And I remember having people <laughs> argue, like, there's never going to replace a film camera because this is just so crap. It's like yeah. one megabyte frame. But... When they start improving it. When it starts improving, yeah. And it accelerates. Yeah. So, okay, let's say maybe five years. It gets oh, to the point where it's going to be... Yeah, more like... <laughs> yeah, go on. Okay. Wow. Um, so let's say three years. Yep. Get to the point where it's good enough quality that you could use it in at least television. Oh, yeah, and, definitely. Um, so you're doing a soap opera. You don't need multiple cameras. You just go and grab those it, angles. It's just in, a matter of function of cost effectiveness. Like mm. at what point is it cost effective to do things? And here's the other thing, right? And uh, this speaks to the craft of cinematography. When we did motion capture, that's what they said. They said, like, you just film the actors like in a – what do they call it? Like a black stage? You know, there's a name for that, right? Like it's a black box, I think mm. it's called. Okay, they just film the actors doing the stuff in mocap suits. And then later, you could film them doing that from any angle. Like yeah. you want a close up, you just put your digital camera in the close up. If you want the wide shot, you, here's the trouble with that, right? You, you don't make films like that. What you do is you dress to the camera. Yeah. And so you don't just record motion capture and then say, okay, now. I'm going to find good camera angles on this. Yep, what you do yep. is you say, I think I want a shot over their shoulder. Okay, now, and I, I, I'm quoting, the, I'm not <laughs> saying you know how to do this. I'm saying I've watched you do this. <laughs> right? And then you'd be like, okay, just make him stand on an apple box because then it'll look right. Yeah, yeah. Now, and I'm like, the guy isn't that tall, but you're right, it looks right. Mm. And that's how you dress the shot to the camera. So that craft doesn't go away. So in, in one sense, what you're saying is, it may be True, technically possible, possible but, but I don't think that's the craft, yeah. yeah. I guess the thing I'm saying is don't extrapolate current things. Like when the internet came out, 
with stuff. Everyone said, oh, you're just going to put brochures online and you're going to publish all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. And that wasn't what blew up the internet. What blew up the internet was putting a platform like YouTube, which made no content, mm. but other people put stuff on there. Now, if anyone said that would be the, which is, it is today, the second most viewed site in the world, yeah, yeah, and worth its weight in platinum. But it didn't do anything, like initially just, yeah. but it was, a, so you can't really extrapolate from now to then because they'll still make soap operas and they'll still have mm. be lighting to the camera, but there'll be this new thing, this new craft, this new job. Maybe it's, um, remember when they were corporate video people? Mm. They'll have a comeback. <laughs> and they'll now be like some new name that some wanker will come up with that'll be some meta whatever thing. Yeah. But that person will be the person that you get to record stuff. And those like you that are technically literate will, you know, separately to your day job of being a DOP, record with the same tech the kids party but on the shoot where you're doing a stunt or something mm. you may use this on set because it's 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 valid in that condition so i don't it'll just become another tool in the box yeah. it's not necessarily going to change the that's whole why i hate futurists because futurists are like oh and then you're this all, is possible you know, therefore. yeah 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 and i'm like no no this doesn't have to work that way right like things don't all just become it's not like you just take everything we do now and they're just Here's the thing, you've got to ask yourself with this technology, the pivotal question of, that you're going to ask me in this podcast comes down to this. Is this just more digitization or is it an actual revolution? Is this uh, just more digital stuff yep. or is it different? Mm. And I, my argument is that's the question you need to ask on any of this new tech. And I would say it's a revolution. It's not the digital process. Like editing has been digital for ages. Right? Mm -hmm. Cinematography has been digital for ages. So it's not just the digitization. You get a certain amount of stuff when you take a process and make it digital. It changes a bit. Yeah. But, but I think then it, it kind of settles back into being basically the, the same. same. Exactly, yeah. So that's where I, I, I pivot. So I would say digital cinematography changed nothing about... Nothing fundamental. Yeah, about lighting, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, like the role of a... Not the camera operator who obviously had to know different buttons, but the cinematographer who was mm. lighting it and composing Maybe the shots. Maybe lighting at different levels, but the craft is the same. Yeah, exactly. It's that... That's what the digitization process gave us. Mm. Now, I, I think it was Seal. It was one of the greats that I mm. spoke to and I asked him about digital cinematography. And I said like, hey, you know, this is back in the day. Yeah. Hey, what do you think about it? I was expecting some really good technical answer. And he went, oh, I love it. And I went, I'm thinking, great. What's he going to say? Like, is it the response? Is it like the, you know, yeah. no, no, it's, that's too obvious. Like, oh, it's the dynamic range. No, no, it's too yeah. obvious. The low light. And I'm, I'm all ready for this technical discussion. And he came back with a simple answer. It's great. We don't have to interrupt the actors to change the mag. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this that, is that why is he's so a great. <laughs> that is why his guy is great. Yeah. Because it facilitated a better creative process yeah. for the actors. Ergo, better performance. Ergo, better film, right? Obviously, way out of my league. Uh, the... the the thing that the, the the magic that happens there when you've got good actors bouncing off each other and and in the moment is it, it, that is something that is happening on a different plane to what you can kind of quantify with all these processes. Yeah. So. So, so creating I'm, the conditions where that can happen exactly. is a powerful thing. Yeah, exactly. So I would say that a lot of this AI stuff is different from the digitization process, which facilitated the mm. same thing better or easier or facilitated mm. better ways of working, um, not having to cut so often, not having to disrupt everything so often, or maybe just a whole lot faster to look back at uh, playback on set, right? Yeah, yeah. But still, like, it was a different thing than if you go, you know what, I'm now going to volumetrically record this event, which would allow someone to participate in it uh, in a way that they previously couldn't as an active participant rather than a passive Mm. doesn't make one better or worse than the other. It's just a different thing. And so that's my <laughs> live or die on the hill kind of moment. <laughs> this isn't just the same as making something you know, more digital. So what does that mean for the audience? Like, what, What's going to change about the audience's experience? Well, as I say, I think one of the big things, apart from um, the things you mentioned so far, is this idea that you could have something that's more active, right? You could have more interactivity. So... My primary research is around digital humans or mm. digital people. And so um, if I can, I'll tell you a quick story. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So I was um, – there was a presentation of a digital child uh, done by Dr. Mark Sager, and I was lucky enough to write a paper with Mark on this. And he's, his team did most of this work, right? Anyway, so he's got a digital baby on the screen, and it's interacting in real time with him. 
So he's talking to the baby, the baby's um, like gooing and cooing and, and it's doing that because it's reading his face, mm. it's listening to his voice, his intonation, uh, his expressions, and it's just reacting to what it's seeing from sensors that it's going into the computer, right? Now, Mark presents this to a room full of academics. I think I've told you the story before, but I apologise. It's such a good story. <laughs> he's presenting this to a room of academics for 25 minutes. He's explaining the tech, right? It's mm. modelling the brain chemistry of a child. So if the mother had had like a cocaine addiction, that would change the biochemistry of the child's wow. brain, which would cause different um, you know, things in the face. Like, there's no doubt that this is ethical, quality research at a, at a completely um, sensible level, yeah. beyond sensible, like you know, aspirational level of um, using the technology for good, right? Mm. Not a party trick, not a gimmick, and not a visual effect. So he discusses 25 minutes, right? Then the baby is up on the screen and the audience is all sitting there, like maybe 100 people, and he's talking to the baby. And when he at some point moves away from the baby, because he's changed the dopamine levels um, artificially in the brain of the child, she gets quite agitated quite quickly. And so she starts crying when he's away from her field of view. And then wow. he comes back and says, no, 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 sorry, I'm, I'm here, hello, hello. And because he raises his pitch and does all the things that you do to a child, the baby soothes down and, like, you know, is, is gooing and happy again, right? And this is really impressive tech. They can even hold a book up with a picture of a sheep and she'll go, sheep, right? Um, and this is happening in real time with the audience there. And at this point, Mark says, which I saw him do this, like, a bunch of times, Yes, and of course, we also modelled the pain response. So if I hit the P key, I'll shock the baby. And as his hand moves towards the P key, the whole room goes, <gasps> like, don't wow. shock the baby, right? Yeah. At which point they all then laugh because they realise this is a completely valid thing, right? <laughs> you have to have a pain response. Yeah. And you're trying to do a simulation of a child. This is not a trick, right? Mm. So they all laugh out loud, like how silly that we just all gasped. Yeah, yeah. And then Mark laughs, because if you're in a room with 100 people laughing, you laugh, right? And then the baby <laughs> sees Mark laughing, and so it starts laughing because daddy's laughing and everybody's <laughs> laughing and it's lots of laughter. And then the audience sees the baby laughing at the same time at a joke at her expense that she doesn't even get. The whole room just a laugh. I mean, if you're in the room, it was electric. Like it was just a moment and you were like, oh, my God, that is a system one front of brain human response. Wow. If I showed you a video of that, you'd be like, oh, okay, I sort of see that. But mm. you wouldn't have the same immediate kind of yeah. like emotional reaction that you get. So as good as feature films are, and I love them to death, yeah, there's a different sensation if you have an immediacy of an interaction. Mm. And it's a, I, I went into a virtual um, space with a volumetric mother with her child. Yeah. And she was kind of crying talking to a child because the team had said to the actress – who wasn't particularly good at acting. And they, so he said, oh, look, your baby's here. Why don't you pick up your baby and talk to your baby on her 18th birthday? Now the mother started actually kind of tearing up because she wow. never conceptualised that. And so she's got a real baby that's hers and she starts trying to talk to her own child and she forgets about the cameras. Wow. Okay, so I'm now witnessing this replayed in volumetric and I'm in the space and I take a step back from her in the virtual space because I felt like I was crowding in on something that was like inappropriate. Like I felt like I shouldn't be that in her space. Wow. Now think about that. I never with Angelina Jolie on an IMAX screen go, you know, Dunning, we should sit further back because I feel like <laughs> we're in Angela's space here a bit. I think we should just give her some room. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's happened to me multiple times. There's a, um, a, a show project about uh, the Holocaust. They got Holocaust survivors and they recorded them and they had them sitting there uh, captured in multiple cameras with multiple bunches of tech and then they mm. built an engine so that you could ask the uh, survivor a question and the, the survivor would answer. Now it's a recording but it was a branching thing. So if I said to you, you know, what day is it? It would maybe give an answer but it wouldn't give like Thursday but it wouldn't have any actual understanding of anything. It would just, he'd recorded Thursday, Wednesday, Friday, Monday, right? Yep. Okay. But having said that, they had it in a hologram so it looked totally real and they had like 123 projectors wow. firing it so that no matter where you moved your head, you'd you know, see them holographically. Now, like the baby, like the mother with the child, and now this Holocaust survivor, I'm sitting there and they, this is at a prototype level. And the guys that are doing this are funded by a grant from Steven Spielberg. It's at a university. It's a completely ethical, right? This mm -hmm. is not in any way mocking anyone or doing anything mm. but they asked hey mike can you sit in here because you've got an australian accent and we want to see how it works with an australian accent because we've got american accents and want to see if it understands you wow and so i go sure and so i ask it some questions and the this 
gentleman who was an actual recording of a Holocaust survivor is answering my questions, right? And and then one of the guys, again, for exactly the right reasons that you did, said, ask him if you saw any Nazis killing Jews. And I went, oh, my God, I can't ask him that. <laughs> like, and, and the guy yeah. was like, well, the thing is, children will ask embarrassing questions, so we yeah. need to have a response for that. And wow. I'm like, I just felt so uncomfortable asking the, the yeah, hologram yeah. this. Now, it's because of the immediacy of it. So this is, again, wow. another long answer to a simple question. In those three examples, AI and, and this stuff that we're talking about will give you a different entertainment experience, a different mm. documentary experience because of the immediacy rather than the pre-recorded version that you get in a feature film. So my thing is, yeah, we'll have a bunch of feature film stuff that's different and then we'll have a whole new class of interesting things that people make, hopefully your listeners, that are different things, but they are interactive, they are new and different, and they're just not what we do now but kind of funkier, faster or better. Wow. Now, I've, I've got a confession to make as well because um, it's school holidays at the moment and there's lots of stuff going on. I've got lots of projects going on. I didn't have enough time to prepare my notes and questions before doing this. And uh, I mentioned this just before you arrived to my teenage son. And, and he said, do you want me to get ChatGPT to prepare your questions and notes for you? I said, let's give it a go. And so I've been referring through this conversation to the notes and question ideas that ChatGPT came up with and they were useful they were helpful it's you know i think we're at a at a very interesting point in time where that's suddenly possible you know which 3 months ago it wasn't he couldn't have made that suggestion 3 months ago yeah wait till 4 comes out yeah not, we're not far off it's um it's going to be a very very interesting interesting and I think exciting time for the world but also particularly for the film industry because there's so much scope to implement a lot of this technology. A- absolutely, yeah, and the environment in which to do it, right? Where you're yeah. looking to come up with new and interesting things. Mike, thanks for stopping in. Thanks so much. <laughs>